0: Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, we're talking about the one thing that separates man from animal. Tools. Wait. No, primates, dolphins, and birds, and other animals use tools. Let's see, oh, I know, makeup. Wait, bearded vultures. They roll around in red soil to give themselves blush. Okay, all right, economics. That's gotta be a human-only kind of thing, or is it? That's right, today we're talking about whether animals could have money before you shake down your local squirrel we're not talking about dollars or buttcoin or ethereum or whatever but whether animals could have a currency make trades and understand when they're getting grifted discover this more as we answer the age-old question you can have an invisible hand but what about an invisible paw joining me today is professor of economics at Colegio carlo alberto who coincidentally is also my husband which is pure coincidence. No nepotism here, folks. Welcome, Dr. Brett McCauley.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So, I think that sometimes people think of economics as simply money math and, you know, just counting dollars, predicting the stocks, stocks and bonds, stocks and bonds. But a lot of it is about studying human behavior and psychology, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. I'd I'd say just about all of economics is about studying human behavior And so of course we're most well known us economists in the popular imagination as people who, who do comment on and, on prices and stocks and so forth but but really what what at least us academic research economists do is is study all all kinds of human behavior and we study it from a particular perspective. we, we like to use quantitative models and econometrics and statistics. But yeah, so, so economists ask questions that often relate to public policy or human behavior. So, you know, maybe, you study, maybe we study sometimes something about uh, immigration or about individual choices and behavioral biases. All, many of these things fall under the sphere of study of economics. Of course, they are also studied by other fields very well. But, uh, you know, we're, we're a social science ultimately. So we cover all manner of social phenomena.
1: So when you look at a human being, you don't just see a fleshy sack of money and uh, numbers walking around, right?
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. Good. Good to know. So it is interesting. So economics is largely about human behavior, but it can also be about animal behavior. So behavioral economists did a study on tufted capuchins. So tufted capuchins are adorable South American monkeys. They live in trees in tropical rainforests. They have this long prehensile tail, fluffy brown and black fur with tufts of black fur on their head that looks like a crazy sort of Elvis hairstyle, complete with sideburns. They weigh from around 5 to 10 pounds or 2 to 5 kilograms, so they're they're little guys. They're they're pretty tiny. They're not they're not teeny tiny, but they're not huge. They are highly social and live in groups of around 10 to 15 individuals. And even though they are only a distant primate relative of ours, they are highly intelligent. They seem to use tools such as sticks to dig up food, cracking cashew nuts with a hammer and anvil stone setup. They even select tools based on their heft and the task they have to do. So, for instance, cashew nuts ripen over time, but when they're freshest, they have a toxic substance in them that causes skin irritation. So, capuchins use larger tools on the fresher cashews, despite them being easier to crack open possibly to protect their little monkey paws from this toxic irritant. They're also known to understand sponges using paper towels or dry biscuits to sop up juice and then suck the juice out of the sponge like a kind of weird popsicle.
2: How do you think they originally learned the sponge technique?
1: I mean, I I would guess just trial and error. Like, the, there's a lot of natural curiosity of these highly socially intelligent animals and they pick something up and then they, you know, dunk it in something else. And then when they put it back in their mouths, they realize, hey, this now is a, is a juicy biscuit. And then other capuchins may copy that behavior. So they're really good at le- sort of just generating ideas themselves and trying things and being really curious. And they're also good at copying others in their social group and learning from them. Uh, they've even been known to manufacture tools like very primitive sharp stone flakes that they use to cut away barriers to food. They break off a stone flake from a rock, which is now very sharp, and then they can kind of cut away at anything that's blocking their food.
2: So it's the 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 stone is kind of already sharp, or they sharpen it?
1: They sharpen it. So they will ch- chip the stone to create like a flake, and then use that flake to cut away at something.
2: Oh, wow. That is, that, I mean, it's pretty high-level thinking. So
1: the behavior of actually cutting the barrier, I should say, has only been documented in captive individuals. And so it's unknown whether this is a wider spread phenomenon. And some researchers would contend that the creation of the stone flakes is inadvertent. So like they're using the stones in a mortar and pestle kind of Technique and then breaking off the stone and creating these stone flakes as a byproduct. Or another theory is they like to crack open these stones so that they can lick at sort of the inside. Like there may be some kind of nutritive or vitamin-like lichens inside. But some contend like that they don't then use these stone flakes as tools. But because it's a behavior that's been seen in captive individuals, it seems like pretty likely that... Similar behaviors may be found in wild individuals and the idea that it's not not a form of tool creation just because they happened upon it by accident is kind of, it's a little strange to me because like how else do you learn how to make tools other than like doing stuff, smashing things together and then Seeing what it can be used for. So I think it's still really intelligent. Uh, it falls a little bit short of like the human ability to like take one tool, use another tool to refine that, and then use a- another tool to refine that and keep going until we get televisions and Twitter.
2: Oh, there's no monkey Twitter or capuchin.
1: I thank God those lucky little, little munchkins. So they are intelligent, but do they understand economics? Or at least do they act like humans do when they are exposed to economic shocks? So what is a shock in economics? Is it when Alan Greenspan like, charges up a car battery and then attaches it to you and you know, lets it rip?
2: Yeah, that's what he would do during Senate Banking Committee meetings to make sure no one questioned him too hard.
1: <laughs> I don't understand any of that. So, so what is an economic shock?
2: So a shock in economics is, it's not so different from our, our, conve- our uh, colloquial understanding of a shock. It's just something that uh, is surprising that happens to economic agents, surprising in the sense that they couldn't anticipate it. So an example of an economic shock would be something like the, the sudden rise in gas prices that has happened over the last few months, and most people didn't anticipate that. And therefore, they have to react in real time to the uh, change in prices and and sort of reallocate or change their their driving patterns or whatever.
1: So, yeah, this is uh, actually what researchers did to capuchins. They raised their gas prices and they tried to drive their little capuchin cars and they were really upset. No, so uh, there is a researcher, Keith Chen and his co-authors. They're a group of behavioral economists, neuroscientists and psychologists who can get along also they can study the behavior of tufted capuchins when given economic shocks and choices and to do this they had to give the monkeys a fiat currency so uh professor brett what is a fiat currency
2: Uh, i'm glad you asked a fiat currency is just some medium of exchange so some item it could be digital it could be physical which allows one to easily trade between people but the actual medium of exchange the currency has no intrinsic value
1: so it'd be like if i suddenly issued creature bucks which is just like a picture of my smiling face on a piece of paper given the thumbs up and this is like this is one creature buck and you can exchange it for one podcast
2: yeah exactly well no but then it would be backed by a podcast so it would have Oh, oh no! Oh, no I po- see what you're saying. The
1: podcast standard, right? Uh, very mu- much more stable than the gold standard. Any standard, the podcast standard. No, okay. So if if I had a Katie or if I had a creature box, uh, and it's not backed by a the a podcast episode, but the creature Buck, you can use to purchase any and all you know podcast related goods.
2: Right, I mean the, the 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 fundamental premise of the fiat currency is that it has value because we all believe it has value.
1: And we do all believe that creature bucks have a lot of value. Go to or Don't go there. It's not an actual I, I I don't have an actual website called that. So if you go there and it's all spam and viruses, it's not my fault. So, uh the capuchins were trained to have a fiat currency. So they were trained that they could exchange tokens for a variety of food rewards. And the researchers allowed the monkeys to gamble with their tokens for food. When the gambling was framed as gambling for a bonus, so sometimes they would receive more food than originally displayed, they were more likely to be willing to take the gamble. But when the gambling was framed as a loss so food would be taken away from the display, even if the final amount of food given to the capuchin was the same as the food given in the, like, bonus gambles, they were more avoidant of the lossy gambles. So, yes, the researchers did teach capuchins to gamble. Yes, they have led these poor little monkeys down to a life of sin and vice. Um, But here is the setup. So you have a capuchin faced with two dealers, just like you would at any kind of casino that you find in the middle of the rainforest. So one dealer is the bonus guy. He displays one apple slice, and when the capuchin gives him his token, the dealer has a 50-50 chance of giving the capuchin either just that one apple slice, or, hey, hooray, you win, an extra apple slice. On the other side of the room is the loss dealer. He displays two apple slices. The monkey gives him a token, and he either gives him both the apple slices or takes one away. So in either case, you have the same odds of winning two apple slices. It is just presented in different ways, either as adding a slice or taking one away. And the capuchins far preferred the bonus dealer. They liked winning the extra slice, perceiving this as a bonus rather than perceiving it as being taken away. And it shows that these capuchins are capable of somewhat human reactions to a gambling situation in terms of loss aversion, and reference dependence. So what is loss aversion and reference dependence?
2: So so reference dependence just means that you, you have some reference which determines how you view certain trade-offs or, or choices. So like, for example, you and I just moved from Los Angeles to Turin. And so our reference for certain qualities of food, like Mexican food, is dependent on what they made in Los Angeles. And then when we eat Mexican food in turn, we just get absolutely furious and just tear the place apart. So, you know, that's, that's reference dependence. And then loss aversion is, is the, the notion that, and these really come from psychology. I should, I should point out, but loss aversion is where you'd, you might face equal odds of getting some payoff in this case, one, you know, one apple slice but you, you really hate to lose something much more than you enjoy gaining an equivalent amount. So this happened. So let's let's go back to the stock market, the 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 typical economics uh, uh, purview, which is w- where people really really suffer when they when they get uh, some huge you know big loss to their their portfolio of stocks. But when they make a lot of money in the stock market, they don't get nearly the same amount of satisfaction or enjoyment to sort of offset what happened with that huge loss and that's what you see with these monkeys
1: it seems like money is just made for us to suffer (laughs) because like we are it hurts so much more to lose money and we're so much more likely to lose money in the stock market
2: but but I mean, but it's not just money, right? Because actually, this experiment shows that it's just like apples. Like that's that has intrinsic value. It's enjoyable to eat apples. It's not even money, and there's still loss aversion.
1: I guess the root of all evil isn't money; it's apples. That
2: yeah, that that was from that famous Pink Floyd song called "Apples." Yeah, I remember that one. Apples. It's it's a crime, right?
1: Now we're gonna get copyright strike from from uh, Pink Floyd and their famous song, Apples. So the capuchins not only displayed this like human-like behavior in terms of this gambling situation, they also responded to changes in prices for different food rewards. So, okay, new experiment. The capuchins were presented with the same amounts of apple, jello, and grape, they showed no preference among these food rewards. They liked all of them relatively equally. And when given a budget of tokens, they would buy them in fairly equivalent amounts, like apple, jello, and grape, all good. They liked to have a variety of these foods because they were all, they were all tasty and they enjoyed all of them about equivalently. But then the experimenters cut the price of apples by giving them an extra apple slice Per token,
2: and maybe you could explain how did how did the Capuchins even understand what the tokens traded for?
1: It's a combination of showing them what happens when you put the token in the tray, and then reinforcement. So they put the token in the little receiving tray, uh, and then they receive a reward. And you do that enough, and they associate putting the token in with getting a reward, and then also. You know, if you have sort of different stalls, so this is the apple stall, this is the jello stall, this is the grape stall, they learn like, oh, if I put it in front of this little apple area, I get an apple, or this is the jello stall, I get a jello. It's like, I mean, essentially like what we do with vending machines. Right. So the experimenters cut the price of apples by giving them an extra apple slice per token. So it'd be like if you used a vending machine and then suddenly now whenever you press the uh, the button for funions. You got two funions for the price of one. Nice. And so yes, it's the the fantasy we all dream of. <laughs> so then the researchers cut the Capuchins' budget. So now they don't have as many tokens in total. So they're like, hey, I know we kept giving you, you know, ten tokens, but now you're only getting five tokens. And so now that these capuchins were forced to be on a budget, the capuchins responded like a lot of humans do by buying more of the cheaper item, the apple. They realized, okay, we're on a budget. We got to tighten our little capuchin belts. So now I'm going to buy apples, which are the budget item. And this is what we often do as humans. When we have to go on a budget, if we don't have a lot of funds, we will buy cheaper things, especially when there are there's like a sudden sort of economic shock of having to significantly change your budget. You go for cheaper items,
2: right? I mean that that's just what all of us are doing with this whole inflation bout and uh, increasing prices of gas and so forth. And now we're we're buying less less cheesecake factory, more McDonald's, right? Right, Katie.
1: I don't really like cheesecake. And I'm borderline about McDonald's. So, you know, if I could Kate, just...
2: Katie's not a woman of the people.
1: <laughs> if I could just have some apple slices, I'll be as happy as one of these little capuchins. But yeah, I, I am curious, and I couldn't find any of these, but I wonder if there are follow-up studies or if anyone would be interested in doing a follow-up study. Uh, wink, wink to all you capuchin researchers out there that show the... Compu- capuchin show an increase in preference for the more expensive food when the apples are no longer on sale. Like, Because I think that sometimes with humans, at least for me, and I, I think with other people too, when something was previously expensive and then the price goes down to something that fits with the items that were generally in your budget, I sometimes would go for the more expensive item that's now at a discount because I have this perception that this thing is of higher quality because it's more expensive even if that's not true
2: right it's almost like two interacting phenomena one is reference dependence so your 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 reference point is a higher priced item but then also this notion that price confers the quality of something so it's like oh it's a high quality good because it has a high you know has a high price and then when the when price drops and it's at a discount it's like oh this previously this this high quality good is now cheap so yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: And the reason I wanna know if capuchins do this as well is that I'm starting to become suspicious that we're all just like little capuchins and that marketers are taking advantage of us just like these researchers are manipulating and twisting these capuchins' behaviors. So I am I am concerned.
2: No, you know, us us researchers would never do that to you.
1: You're, you keep winking and like I'm, I am I want to remind you this is an audio podcast and they can't actually see you repeatedly winking and nudging me.
2: But I can see them.
1: You, We're not supposed to tell them that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
4: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: So, uh, Professor McCauley, you can confirm that we have a dog, right? We do. Yeah. Do you think she understands money?
2: I think she understands treats, which in her world, I guess, are are some equivalent version of money.
1: She can be bribed with treats. uh, Or I guess I I should put it like she actually extorts us. It's not really us bribing her. It's her extorting us.
2: It's exchange. It's classic economic exchange. We give her a treat and she stops being a bad girl.
1: (laughs) So there is this thing in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations where he says quote nobody ever saw a dog make a fair and deliberate exchange of one bone for another with another dog nobody ever saw one animal by its gestures and natural cries signify to another that this is mine that yours i am willing to give this for that so the study we just discussed proves that this is wrong about capuchins, but was Adam Smith also wrong about dogs? What do you think?
2: He he did write that like a hundred years before Darwin was on the scene. So <laughs> the guy was a little ignorant about animals. So I'm I'm guessing you're about to tell me that that he was wrong about this other thing.
1: That's right. Adam Smith was a dumb, stupid poopy head who was wrong about everything. Alright. <laughs> but you know, is that too too strong?
2: You know, he, he had some some good ideas, some, some not so up to the up to date ideas.
1: Invisible hand, more like invisible brain, because he doesn't it, have one. Wait, was Adam Smith invisible hand man?
2: Yeah, well, he yeah he yeah he's invisible hand man, and I guess what would be a good invisible paw joke?
1: I mean, you kind of just made it, but then you stepped all over it. I
2: know. Well, <laughs> you know, I was trying I was trying to think on my feet. It's like trying what to
1: think if on your invisible feet? On
2: my invisible feet and, and that's the problem my invisible brain didn't kick in and- yeah
1: but um what i do mean is that adam smith was a dumb dumb because he was so wrong about animals and dogs we tend to think of dogs as giving us unconditional love and affection, being guileless not being little penny pinchers but they actually are they can sense when things are unfair in an exchange So researchers did an experiment where they included dogs who knew the shake trick. So dogs would do the trick whether they were rewarded or not, which seemed to indicate that they felt an intrinsic reward in completing the trick. So they were really well trained. And if they continued to be unrewarded while observing other dogs getting rewards, they went on strike and they refused to perform the trick anymore.
2: There's kind of similar analysis, empirical evidence from economics about inequality and how much people hate to observe the same sort of thing. So... There's this common practice in by employers in the United States where where they make people hide how much they earn from other employees because they're afraid that they would get jealous and just like these dogs employees would not that not that we want to compare employees to dogs but I'm just saying the same <laughs> phenomenon uh, kind of happens where employers know that people hate to see someone who they feel like might maybe works the same as hard as they do and yet makes more money uh, than they do. And so uh, there, there's very good reason that they would be concerned about that. There is empirical evidence that people really resent. If if you're at the same firm and you have one employee, you have a couple employees, and then suddenly the employees learn about what how much everyone is paid, that people really resent when they are paid less than other people for seemingly identical output. And, and so dogs seem to have the same kind of intrinsic sense of fairness based on what you're saying.
1: Yeah. I, I think uh, this means that dogs should form a union, right?
2: Yeah. Again, I'm trying to, I keep trying to think about invisible paw,
1: <laughs> invisible dog body parts. You'll, yeah, the invisible, one of these days. The invisible, how can you shake with the invisible paw? paw? How can you shake with the invisible paw?
2: <laughs> the in, wait, oh, shake. Oh, I see. Right, or, it, or are you shaking the invisible paw or is the invisible tail shaking the invisible dog?
1: I'm literally going to die. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, it, it is really interesting. So basically these dogs, when they were unrewarded, they were fine with that because they just got a kick out of doing the trick. But when they saw other dogs... Getting rewarded and, and they weren't that is when they stopped doing the trick. That is when they started to get upset about things being unfair. And
2: And so did they do a sit-down strike?
1: <laughs> nice. Sit-down and roll over strike. Right. <laughs> so does this mean that dogs are as intelligent as primates? It's really hard to make value judgments on intelligence when you're comparing animals, but suffice it to say that their intelligence remains different from primates. So there was another study on tufted capuchins, uh, those same species of monkey we talked about earlier, where they would exchange a token for a slice of cucumber. But capuchins like grapes more than cucumbers because obviously... So when a capuchin who had previously been happy to trade the token for a cucumber saw another monkey getting a beloved grape instead of a stupid cucumber for that same token, the monkey would get upset and go on strike and refuse to pay for his cucumbers.
2: Right. And that's that's where he would throw the invisible feces.
1: Oh, my God. I, I'm, I made such a huge mistake bringing up Adam Smith. This was...
2: That was a great bit. I'm just going to beat it to death (laughs) for the rest of this episode.
1: So, So unlike these capuchins, the dogs aren't able to make the distinction between more coveted food. So they get jealous if they see a dog getting rewarded and they aren't being rewarded at all. But if a other dog gets a better reward, like a tastier treat, a higher value treat, they don't get jealous, so.
2: Okay, I'm I'm skeptical. I mean, if we fed if we showed Cookie another dog getting beautifully cooked salmon, and then we offered for her treat just some dumb dog food like dry dog food, I feel like she would be smart enough to know what, what was going on.
1: I mean, Cookie might our, our dog might be an outlier in terms of pettiness, though, because she seems to use almost. of her brain power on pettiness and a sense of fairness to her, to her exclusively, not fairness to us or to other dogs. So she she might be an outlier, but I do share some of your skepticism. I'm curious. I think the disparity between the treats may have been too small. So if they made a much larger disparity between the treats and like say you gave one dog a bunch of Really good smelly treats and a lot of praise, and then the other dog got bupkis. It's a it's a good point. I am I am curious a too. A cat turd. A cat. Well, actually, they love cat turds. That's like the caviar of dog treats. Mm. They covet cat turds and they will eat them if given the chance because cat feces are higher in fat content and it just smells and tastes great to them.
2: I mean, there could also be kind of different effects depending on the dog that is maybe on average dogs don't really react to this, but you have some fraction of dogs that are really upset by fairness. So cookie would be in that like 20% of dogs that are upset by the clear unfairness and the treat, the quality of the treat given, but maybe the rest of the dogs don't. And then you, you can estimate no effect in, in the, in the whole study. This is, we're getting into statistics here. Please folks don't turn off your headsets where i well, will stop.
1: I will I will kick him off the podcast if he brings up any more statistics. No, I'm kidding. Statistics are good. So while dogs do seem to understand fairness when it comes to themselves, they don't necessarily understand reciprocity. So there was an experiment where dogs were faced with a human who could either press a give food or don't give food button. And some of the human volunteers were quote-unquote helpful So they would press the give food button more and others were unhelpful and wouldn't press the give food button as much. And the dogs would whine at the unhelpful humans, but when it came time for reciprocity, so now dogs were armed with buttons that could give the humans food.
2: They were just happy to let the humans starve.
1: (laughs) Yes. So they had been previously trained on these buttons to give themselves food. So they knew that the buttons cause food to happen and dogs didn't really seem to care at all about delivering the humans food and they didn't seem to care whether the human was one of the generous volunteers or not and when the dogs were allowed to interact with the humans they were just as affectionate with the stingy humans as with the non-stingy humans. I think it's interesting because to me I don't think this necessarily means dogs wouldn't have a preference for humans based on kindness. I think they just were unable to make the connection between the buttons and the food and the the idea of like, oh, you're giving me more food intentionally, so I should press this button that delivers you a cheeseburger. It didn't it didn't work.
2: I mean, it, it makes sense to me just thinking like about the evolution of dogs because It's never been that the dog has really helped feed the human and then the dog would like read the body language, right, of the human of like, oh, that human really enjoys the food. Whereas I'm sure the dog can read the body language. Like Cookie could read the body language of another dog that's really enjoying its salmon while Cookie has no salmon, for example. I feel like, uh, you know, the the direction of food distribution has always been going one way throughout the history of man and dog from man to dog. (laughs) And and therefore, why, why, sh- why would dogs ever be able to discern how the human uses the food? Yeah, no, that makes
1: complete sense. I agree with that. I think it is really interesting because, yes, dogs, we domesticated dogs, but dogs in turn kind of domesticated us towards their ends of providing them handouts and food. And...
2: It's the invisible hand that feeds.
1: Oh, my God. I... Folks, this is going to continue long after we're done recording. I just want you to know what I suffer through. (laughs) Yeah, so the psychology of the dog would be to please humans, but not necessarily to give food directly to humans or understand that flow of like food from dog to human. Although it's interesting because cats will try to, teach you to hunt sometimes because they will teach their kittens, their offspring, how to hunt. And so female cats will often uh, bring you a half-dead mouse and leave it there for you because they think that this is uh, – it's a learning experience for you because you will be able to easily kill this half-dead mouse. And, of course, they're going to be confused when you scream and run away.
2: Yeah, I remember – my aunt's cat bringing up one of those half dead mice, and then my uncle took my flip flop and and finished the job, and uh, yeah, I could never use that flip flop again. It was, I was very upset. <laughs> upset eleven year old.
1: Yeah, I mean your your uncle probably really pleased your cat though because your cat's thinking like, uh, oh, you know, he he learned he finished the job, and then when your uncle didn't proceed to eat the mouse, the cat was probably very confused.
2: Yeah, I think Fletcher was pretty triumphant about the whole situation.
1: (laughs) So in addition to understanding fairness, dogs are susceptible to friendly marketing techniques. When presented with two food bowls of equal amounts of food, they prefer to approach a food bowl when it is next to an image of their owner's face. So it's unknown exactly why they do this, whether they associate their owner's face with a trusted reward. But it's kind of neat to know that you're like your dog's personal food mascot. In a dog society, there'd probably be a bunch of billboards with like human faces next to dog food. We don't really do the. Okay, this is what's weird. We don't use companion animals much to advertise food for us to eat, but we do use the animals that we eat themselves and make them look cute and have them advertise the food of themselves. I find that weird.
2: Wait, you mean like like a chicken advertising chicken?
1: Yeah, like cartoon chickens will advertise chicken, but a cartoon dog doesn't necessarily advertise chicken. But we empathize more with the dogs than with the chicken.
2: Well, that's true. But then you also have the Chick-fil-A cow advertising chicken so there, there's a bit of a reversal
1: real benedict arnold of the animal world just selling out its animal peers like eat them not me it's there's... the
2: invisible hoof
1: no
0: <laughs> are you ready to take charge of your health journey look no further than trinity school of natural health with their flexible online programs you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
4: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: We've talked about capuchins, adorable little monkeys, and we've talked about dogs, and they are both really smart. Uh, There are other really smart animals out there like primates and dolphins and elephants, but could something with a tiny brain like an insect make economic decisions what do you think
2: i mean if by economic decisions you just mean you just mean maximizing some outcome based on constraints which is at a very abstract level what economists think of uh, humans doing then uh, yeah but it's not maybe not uh, exactly economics uh
1: you're saying that you don't think insects could do your job.
2: I'm saying the invisible antennae are are not going to be as economically minded as, as what uh, we think of humans' invisible hands.
1: Well, that's fair enough. I guess you don't have to worry too much about bugs coming for your job as an economist yet. But I think what's interesting is that insect behavior uh, can be very similar to economic models. So if you want another reason to hate wasps, they're also landlords. So paper wasps will build these nests that are clusters of little chambers. They gather fibers from dead wood and plants and regurgitate them into a sort of paper mache like substance, and that's why they're called paper wasps. A dominant paper wasp usually controls a nest structure, and these dominant female wasps will rent out nests in return for child care. So a dominant female paper wasp will allow subletting paper wasps into her complex of nests in return for them helping to care for her offspring. So she's kind of like a landlord, but instead of renting, you have to feed her babies. And if you don't do enough work for her, she offspring, eats babies. No, no, you don't. You don't feed her babies. Although if you're feeding her like larvae from, you know, another species, I'm sure she wouldn't complain. But you have to feed. Give food to the babies of this wasp, and if you do not do enough of this, if you do not do enough work for her offspring, she will evict you.
2: So, well, that's less. I I thought she would just kill you, so that's less severe than I thought. (laughs) I guess there's a self-regulating market here.
1: Yeah, I mean, she she'll just force them out of the little cubicles, and not only do paper wasps have this rental setup but researchers have found that they respond to rental market forces so when there are more rentals available so more competition among landlord wasps these landlord wasps will accept lower pay that is they won't evict their tenants even if their tenants are not doing as much labor as perhaps they would want
2: but so so how does that how does the market adjust i guess so like suppose you have let's say quote unquote stable market equilibrium and then you have an introduction of of new or the new housing essentially new wasp housing and so the market price should go down but like how long does it take the wasps to sort of recognize that uh, it's harder to actually fill their their uh, available housing how long does it take the wasps to to sort of find the new housing do you know what i'm saying like how does right. how does this play out how does it the the changes over time happen, and how do the wasps even realize it?
1: I mean, it probably is a pretty rapid rate, uh, given sort of the wasp lifespan, and I would assume it probably has something to do with the like the number of wasps that you have in your little wasp apartment complex. So if you're you have a bunch of wasps all kind of trying to get into your apartment complex, you probably have a sense that hey. You know the competition is good. It's not. It's not as if the the landlord wasps are scoping out other sort of wasp apartment complexes and making a decision based on that. It's probably.
2: Are they trying to clip the wings of competing uh, wasps and form a you know like the mafia mafia style? <laughs> Just sort of break the knees of of the yeah, competition.
1: Break the mini. It take a while because there's a few knees it would be funnier if these were bees because I could say bees knees, but these are unfortunately (laughs) wasps. I think it's that they can sense whether there's a lot of, you know, wasps trying to vie for position in this wasp apartment complex. But if there's not as many, they need all the help they can get essentially. So they will be less finicky.
2: And so what what about if there's a new development, a new real estate development. How, how does the landlord, a, a landlord of a new property development, let's say, how do they advertise to other wasps? Like, hey, come on over to, to the, our new beautiful luxury apartments. We offer reasonable rates.
1: That's a really good question. I don't know. It. I mean, if they did advertise at all, it'd probably be through pheromone signaling. So like they could maybe detect the pheromones of like a new dominant wasp. In that area, but that is a really good question. I would assume it's either something like that, or them like as they're flying around, visually spotting this new uh, this new nest, and then checking it out if they're unhappy with the conditions in their other nest.
2: Right. The 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 new landlords just write a banner that says, "If you lived here, you'd be home already."
1: <laughs> One of those signs that they put up in new land development with like a smiling family, but it's just like wasps cradling a larva and it's like a great place for your larvae to grow up
2: right yeah we, we have the best schools for what, what would it even what would the analog <laughs> even be
1: but, but what would i'm sorry are you asking me what the analog what a wasp school would be yeah for wasps yeah there is none oh <laughs> i mean
2: yeah, they they're just they're just cradle to grave working. I guess there's no there's no Pretty school much. time. They don't need to build up the human capital. Or I should say the wasp capital. Yeah. Inside of each, each of, of them, and you know, yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, they they grow
2: up so fast.
1: <laughs> so, uh, if you wonder why wasps would engage in this rental system, in the first place, the tenant wasps get a benefit. They can sometimes inherit the rental complex and become the new dominant wasp, or at least they can lay a few eggs themselves. since building the nest is costly, the social system actually increases their chance at reproductive success.
2: so it's rare to have kids in this in the wasp communities.
1: Well, it's not so much that it is rare to have offspring, it's that it takes a lot of resources to build a, an entire nest. So like the time you spend investing in building this whole nest structure is, it, it's, it takes away from your time and resources to reproduce. So if you can use someone else's nest structure and, you know, maybe sort of sneakily lay some of your own eggs or hope that uh, someday you'll be big and strong enough to become the new dominant wasp, that may be a safer bet than trying to build your own wasp apartment complex.
2: Right. So, so it's all about the productivity. And as you have higher and higher income, you can afford to invest more in your in your children. And it's just, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about white Anglo-Saxon Protestants now, right?
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. This whole time, I uh, we were just talking about wasps, you know.
2: All right. Now I'm on board.
1: All right. But yeah, so it is, it is interesting. I mean, it's like, it is in theory, the idea behind landlords, is, the, the argument for them is that they take on the risk of ownership and development. In reality, you know, the, the just disparity in terms of wealth between tenants and landlords means that they're not really taking on that much risk and the uh, tenants are not getting that much, like, long-term benefit other than a place to stay, so it kind of breaks down. But in, in theory, like, in this kind of system with these WASPs, the landlord is investing resources and taking on sort of a risk, and even though they may get more benefits from the situation once they get tenants the tenants at least uh, didn't have to risk building a whole new nest.
2: Right, and because this landlord uh, landlord tenant relationship exists in nature, that means it's morally correct in human societies, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> I yes, this is uh this is of course the lesson always to take is that if animals do it, it's moral. So you should eat your babies, you know. Us, uh, actually, you know, like I should probably eat your head because spiders do that.
2: Um, no, that's, that's okay.
1: <laughs> Changed your tune pretty quickly. So uh, speaking of other uh, insects, scorpion flies, that was a good segue. So scorpion flies also respond to market forces in competition. Scorpion flies are a type of insect related to flies. They look like a fly with a scorpion stinger on the end, but this is actually just the genital bulb of the males and not an actual stinger. Oh, gross. (laughs) Don't you like that word, genital bulb?
2: Yeah, that's that's a pretty good one.
1: So they don't... The
2: invisible bulb. Oh,
1: my God. So they don't really kill or bite living creatures and prefer to eat carrion or dead insects. So they're a lot nastier looking than they actually are. There are many different species of scorpion flies, and some of these species offer nuptial gifts to their mate. So nuptial gifts is a food item presented to a female to convince her to copulate. So male scorpion flies will offer a tasty French kiss to the female where they regurgitate some nutrients through their saliva as a nuptial gift. And this is how you wooed me, remember?
2: Yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> so larger nuptial gifts are often preferred as they both indicate male fitness and give the females a large meal. So when there is more competition in the saliva business, meaning there are more males around, females tend to be choosier and will hold out for a larger nuptial gifts. But when there are fewer males around, they become less choosy and accept some kind of piddling droplet of nasty saliva.
2: Right, I see. So, but it, are are males competing only along this one dimension, basically, of quantity of and quality of of uh, saliva that they can produce?
1: No, no. I mean, there's all sorts of different dimensions of competition for these males. So you know, their ability to go around and find females. So, yeah, no, there, there's there are many other elements to the competition, but this is a very major uh, point of the competition.
2: You know, I think economists kind of model marriage markets, as we call them, in a similar way for humans, where, you know, there's each mate is uh, looking for kind of the best match, the person that will make them happiest over their entire lifetime is is how we would characterize it. but it's it's usually hard to tell. There's what we call asymmetric information. You don't know from the beginning of the relationship if it's going to be a lifelong happy relationship, or maybe it'll be kind of a a quick, quick burn one, which uh, quickly turns not so happy. And so it's important it 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 can be helpful for a partner to invest in a signal that they are, in fact a good match for someone. But where this, I, I asked about there being many dimensions because, this is, you know, we we typically think of a, a human relationship to be multidimensional and not just not just be about uh, my incredible good looks or, or whatever. <laughs> so for humans, there, there's some person who's a good match for another person, but they'd be a bad match for someone else.
1: So what you're saying is you viewed our relationship entirely in terms of marketability and economics is what I'm learning right now.
2: Yeah, I I viewed our relationship as something which would maximize my lifetime discounted utility. Obviously.
1: Oh, that's so romantic. But yeah, I mean, you know, um you did win me over with giving me a cup of nutritive saliva and that was sufficient for me to calculate your fitness. And so here we are, a match made in heaven.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's been great, but so I have one more question on these guys. Sure. Can a male get some saliva from another male, from his bro, his, his let's say, wingman?
1: <laughs> you, I feel like you only asked that question because you had the wingman pun, but I'll allow it. So I don't think so, but there are cases of duplicity in terms of nuptial gifts with spiders where sometimes a male will wrap up a you know, basically they will have like an insect that's been wrapped up in spider silk and presented to the female. But some of these spiders will wrap up, which seems to be a large gift, but it's just like a twig or a dead leaf or something. So they trick the female into sticking around for copulation and when they like unwrap this gift, it's just full of garbage.
2: Oh wow. So has this has this duplicity led to all these spider women checking out their gifts immediately?
1: I mean, they. I think they unwrap them as fast as they can. It's one of those things that... It, as fast it,
2: as they can? What do you mean? Is the copulation just a, a snap, yeah, snap? Oh, I it,
1: yeah, no, the male will go at it as quickly as he can and get out of there as quickly as he can because... Uh, classic you know. male. <laughs> but yeah, so what is interesting about that is that kind of cheating, and this is just a general thing for for like cheating in nature, duplicity, is you can only have a certain level of that to be sustainable. Because if you start to have that happen all the time, females are going to become wise to that and stop accepting nuptial gifts that will no longer be an an aspect. They'll probably just turn around and like eat the male as soon as they can. So it it is a delicate balance. So
2: Yeah, that's uh, actually the subject of Nobel Prize winning economist George Akerlof's paper, A Market for Lemons which was about the used car market uh, where you you have used cars. Some of them are so-called lemons where they just don't work. And you can have a so-called unraveling of the market uh, where all the, all the used cars on the market are just lemons. And so then no one wants to buy the them and then there's no demand and then no more market exists. So you can't, you essentially can't have too high of a rate of lemons in the market uh, in order for there to be some demand for used cars. You have to have a good amount of reasonably working cars. And it's the same, you know, ultimately we can apply a lot of the same kind of logic for any kind of sort of theoretical model of behavior. We're talking about animal behavior, but human behavior, there's a lot of similarities. And and uh, I think at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned like evolutionary game theory, which is very much, uh, it's just drawing on the same types of math and and tools that we use in economics to model animal behavior because there's there's quite a, a lot of overlap. Isn't that the whole point of this this whole podcast here?
1: Yeah, no, I mean that that was you know I, I think it is interesting because when we sort of talk about our you talk about economics and I talk about evolutionary biology, there is a lot of overlap, and that that limit theory is. Kind of present, yeah, in a lot of like game theory in in evolutionary biology. Of you know, you can't you can't overwhelm the quote unquote market with uh, false signals; otherwise, uh, animals will learn to ignore that signal. In this case, uh, sometimes the results can be deadly. Of a female uh, spider and species where they practice sexual cannibalism, deciding it's not worth waiting around long enough to like open this nuptial gift and instead they just like turn around and eat the male oh really yeah i mean you know just keep that in mind
2: so she she has her wedding cake and eats him too
1: exactly yes or he is the wedding cake that'd be cute right spider wedding and then the male is the wedding cake
2: right yeah yeah like reminds me from that scene in spider-man
1: there was a scene in spider-man where they got married and then what?
2: <laughs> you can see how in tune I am with popular culture.
1: The Spider Man. No, everybody's talking about Morbius now. It's all about the Morbius.
2: What the heck is that? What are What are kids into these days?
1: Morbius. I just told you.
2: Oh
1: my gosh. Anyways, uh, before we go, we gotta we gotta play a little game. Do you want to play a little game?
2: Sure. I don't know what. Impression you're doing, but yeah,
1: I, you've you've fallen into my trap, and now we're going to play a little game. Is that jigsaw? No, I guess he didn't talk like that.
2: No, what the heck are you doing?
1: I don't know, man. I just remember in the jigsaw, you know, like and he's like, play my danger puzzles. In
2: jigsaw, you mean saw?
1: Saw, yeah. <laughs> and then the little puppet guy goes like, play my saw puzzles. You do a puzzle, but it's with saws.
2: Maybe maybe in post you should you should modulate your voice to sound like the squid game I, guy. I that thought
1: would... I sounded exactly perfect, though. Oh, yes.
2: Of Welcome course, to
1: our squid games. The deadliest prey is man. Remember that in squid games? Anyways, we're going to play Guess Who's Squawkin'. It's the animal sound guessing game. Woo! Yeah, where you guess hey, who's squawking? I say squawking, but it can be any animal on the planet. And so here is that aminal. Here's an unfortunate reality about recording a podcast. Uh with someone like right over my shoulder is that you get to see my computer screen, which is something I didn't really think about before we did this.
2: Yeah, You, you also showed me this. Yeah, I did. Not, not that I would remember the name of the animal.
1: Yeah, I did show this to you, but uh, it, it is, so I'm not gonna let you guess because that would be cheating, but I would say like if you heard this and you weren't cheating uh, <laughs> right now like you are, uh, what uh? What would you think it was?
2: Yeah, I I think I would guess some kind of bird, which now that I'm lo- you know I'm looking at it and it it sounds ridiculous, but I feel like if I didn't know if I had a veil of ignorance that would be my guess. I don't know what kind of bird because I don't know birds, but some bird.
1: <laughs> some bird. Well, you're wrong, you dumb dumb. Sorry, I don't mean it. Uh, no, it is a Malayan tapir. Congratulations to Joey P. who guessed correctly. This is a large pig-like ungulate with a long proboscis-like nose with coloration like a panda, except it's got an all-black head. This interesting color blocking actually interrupts its silhouette, making it more difficult for predators to identify it. They can grow up to 8 feet long, which is 2.5 meters, and weigh up to over... 700 pounds or around 320 kilograms and they have that long nose is a short prehensile trunk that they can use to grip vegetation so i think they're adorable and fun and funky
2: yeah their their snout looks i mean i'm looking at a picture where the guy's turning up his snout and it looks really weird like it's a split snout i don't know
1: well, it's because the underside of it, like you actually have the roof of their mouth sort of on the underside, and then this like pink coloration of, you know, basically what is like their upper lip, but then it's mm. really elongated.
2: Yeah, it's like it's like someone took the, the tapir's lip and just stretched it all the way out to the end of his snoot, and it looks uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> They're fine. They love it. On to this week's mystery animal sound. Um, And here's the hint. Though featured in the silence of the lambs, this fellow is not silent. So I'm going to play a sound. Close your eyes. Is it a lamb? No. (sighs) Do you think I would do that? Oh, right. Seriously? Then it would
2: be the noise of the lambs, not the silence of the lambs.
1: Stupid. Wow. Wow. Wonderful. So I'm going to play this, but close your eyes, hun. Are they closed? Yeah. You're not cheating. Okay, no. hang on.
2: Uh, it's our dog. No. That definitely sounds like our dog.
1: Okay. So, you know, other than the dog barks in the background, who do you think was squawking there?
2: Maybe maybe Dana Carvey. I feel like he is a wide range
1: Dana Carvey, what does he have to do with the science of the lambs?
2: The science of the lambs?
1: Silence of the lambs.
2: I, at first I was like, oh, maybe this is some kind of rodent. Hmm. But then it's like the, the it's too low pitched to be a rodent. So then I, then I had no idea.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if you- out- I'm an
2: economist.
1: <laughs> if you out there are not suffering from being an economist and you want to write in to me, with your guesses about what this is, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at creaturefeetpod. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. And usually I would tell people where they can find my guests, but uh, you're... I can't be found. You can't be found. I keep them locked up in here in my little pod loft, and, like, them, like I dangle wealth of nations out to lure him out and then feed him like din, din's.
2: yeah I, I could use some help listeners
1: <laughs> nope. everything's fine uh so thank you so much for listening if you're enjoying the show and you want to leave a rating and review uh i really appreciate that that actually really helps the show a lot and it also i read all of the reviews every single one of them i'm compiling them in a binder. And carrying it around. And whenever I feel, you know, self-conscious or anything, like I open up my binder of positive reviews and I go through them and I feel great. And people look at me and they stare. But I, I, I it doesn't bother me because I got my book of positive reviews. And like their stares, their judgment doesn't mean anything because...
2: They're invisible stares.
1: They're invisible stares because Kirby, Kirby Sonic mario uh 100 told me that i have a cool podcast and a nice voice
2: was that like a 40 year old gamer yeah who but are these characters come on get with the times
1: 40 year old gamers love to listen to the podcast so don't you dare besmirch besmirch them so yeah thank you so much for listening and thanks to the space cossacks for their super awesome song Exolumina. creature features a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts like the one you just heard Visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Or if you listen to your favorite shows. I don't I I don't actually care. I mean I care about you. I just don't care where you listen to your shows. Because that's that's your business. It's not mine. See you next Wednesday.
0: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.